Uh, one of the first disciples of the Apostle John, so one of the first uh, men that he discipled that we know of, uh, was the name that if you're having a new baby, this is a very good name. His name was Polycarp. Uh, he was arrested, he was mobbed, and he stood trial before the Roman authorities. We think it's around like 150 AD, so not too long after the apostles passed. Uh, he was arrested for belonging to this new cult that was called Christianity in the first century, okay? Uh, he, he, would be, he, he would be released simply if he would say these words, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. So if you, just say, if you just renounce Christ as Lord, just say Caesar is Lord, give a pinch of incense to the altar, just a little pinch, you can go free. And as you can probably imagine, he refused. And instead he said this, this is what, is what recorded for us. For 80 and six years, so he's, uh, he's at least 86 years old, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? So I think a lot of us would agree. Uh, the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is Lord, right? We just read that. We just read it here. Uh, we just sang it many times. We know that Jesus is Lord. Uh, we know that this is the reason why the Christians in the early church, why Christians even now, uh, shouldn't have to fear because Christ is Lord, right? We can triumph in Christ. But what does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you know what it actually means? So we often talk about the gospel as Jesus, uh, as God, became man, lived perfectly right, died, or suffered, died, was buried, rose on the third day, and then we kind of just leave it there. But in reality, we forget that Jesus, he also ascended to the right hand. So he didn't just stay here. He left 40 days after Easter, right? It's the ascension. So the work of Christ can be compared to, now I'm going back to your high school math days here, can be compared to that of a parabola. Do you know what a parabola is? You start at this point, you make a big U shape. It's like an upside down bell, right? And you end at a parallel point. So as high as you started, you make a U, and you end as high as you began. That's where you end at, okay? Well, the work of Christ is very similar. He started up here in glory, right? He came down to the earth, died, rose again, and he ascends back right to where he was, right? It's U-shaped. And Jesus constantly speaks about him going back to the Father. In John 16, Jesus says this, I've, I came from the Father, and I've come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus says things like this many times that we often forget about. Uh, we, we read about Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, uh, being ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, having all things put under his feet, being the Lord of all. This is what this means. And I think we often forget that this is so important because this, this marks the beginning of the last days. It's showing the completion of what Christ has done. The fulfillment of prophecy, and if Jesus never ascended, uh, we would never receive the Holy Spirit. So it's very important that we understand what it means for Christ to be Lord. It means that his work is complete, right? He put all things under his feet. So in Philippians 2, this hymn is going to show us that first, if you remember last time we talked about Christ was first humbled, right? The humiliation, he became, he was God who became mad, suffered and died, right? To the point of death, death on a cross. And then he's exalted, right? So he goes very low, and now he goes very high. So it's always this in the Christian way. It's first humiliation, then exaltation, right? It's always the cross before the crown, suffering, then glory, right? This is how it works. And Paul wrote this letter in jail, and he is in jail right where Jesus Christ wanted him to be, right? Because he is the Lord, after all. 
So today I want you to see four crucial assertions about why it's important that Jesus is ascended or that he's the Lord or that he rose to the Father's right hand. Why it's important for you to know that. So number one, Jesus has received the highest exaltation. Look at verse nine. So Philippians 2, chapter 9, the very beginning here. So the point of death, death on a cross, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, when you see the word therefore, what should you automatically think? Well, what is that word therefore? Right? Because it's, it's referring to back what you just read. So because he humbled himself and died on the cross, therefore, so because of that, God has highly exalted him, right? This is, this is because of what Christ has done, God is now doing something great for him, right? God has highly exalted him. The, the great humility gets a great exaltation, right? Uh, Jesus goes to the depths of the Grand Canyon, and he's lifted as high as Everest, right? I mean, there's, these are parallel things, very low, very high, right? Jesus descended to the world to conquer, and he ascended as the king. So if you think about this, uh, the cross is where Jesus actually conquers sin and conquers death for us, right? And his ascension is kind of like his crowning day. The ascension is the coronation. I don't know if, if you guys watched the, the coronation of, Hen, of Harry, not Henry or Harry, one of those guys. I forget, I'm forgetting who it was. Uh, not too long ago, it was this ceremony. Do what? One of them? Charles, Sammy, Carl, I don't know who it was. One of them. Uh, that was the coronation. That, that was when he was officially proclaimed as king. He was already going to be king. But that was the official ceremony, right? Good thing I know my world history very well. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says this, that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So in the original language here, the exalted means the highest. It actually means super. So Christ was super exalted. God has super exalted Christ to the highest place. So as one with the Father, how can Jesus now be? I thought he was already highly exalted. He's already God. So how is Jesus exalted again? Well, as God, Jesus cannot be any more God than he already is, obviously, right? But what it does mean is Jesus does something, he's, he's, he's now done something he hasn't done before. Namely, he came as a conquering king, right? Jesus never died until he became man, right? He never conquered sin and death until he became a man to conquer sin and death. And what did Jesus bring back to heaven that he didn't previously had? Well, a body, right? His body is it's the trophy of his victory, right? He still has scars in his hands and his feet and his side, right? This gives him more glory, more things to praise for. Now, this reference I do know very well. If you've ever seen the movie Lion King, this should be very helpful for you. So in the very beginning of Lion King, if you, if you recall, Simba is born, right? And they hold him up. I won't do that awful song, but they hold him up, right? And all the animals, what do they do? Do you remember? They all bow down. They, they bow to this little tiny puppy king, right? Like, oh, good, a little cat. Good, we're, this is great, right? But they know that he's, de he's, he's designated for this position, right? Rafiki holds him up, right? But he still must battle for it, right? If you recall, Scar comes in. He has to defeat the enemies, right? He has to conquer them. And then when he does, he goes back to the same rock called Pride Rock. He goes to the same rock. And then he's recognized, ah, that is our king. So he was already king, but he had to go through battle. And then he goes to the same rock and ascends to be king. Well, same with Christ, right? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the wise men say this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they know this little baby is going to be king. Where is he at? Right? But Jesus has to go to battle. 
demonstrate that he is the king. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus kind of, he shows us, he's on pride rock again, so to speak, and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that sounds like king language, doesn't it? What kind of king can talk like that? Well, this king can, right? So in reality, friends, there's only one authority in the entire universe. And that is Jesus Christ, the only Lord and King. So every power, every ruler, every country, no matter how big or small, they all have borrowed authority, right? Every government entity, they don't have any authority themselves. It's all derived. It's all received from Christ, right? Even the devil is Jesus' devil. Jesus owns him. The invisible chains of Christ are upon all of creation, right? So do you see now why as Christians we believe that being an unbeliever is radically insane? Who are you trying to oppose? I mean, you have no shot, right? He's the fountainhead of all authority, right? He rules over all and through all, right? Do you remember what Jesus told Pilate in John 19? So he stands before Pilate, you know, the man, the man of the hour. He's, well, I'm Pilate. I can do whatever, whatever I want with you, Jesus. And in John 19, verses 10 and 11, Pilate says this. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I have been given you from above. So even Pilate, every little power you have, it's not even yours. It's from me. It's from God. I've given it to you, right? So just as a master craftsman has all the tools in his belt, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use, so Christ wields over all people and all things, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. (laughs) Friends, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord this way? How differently would your lives change if you were really gripped by this reality? So think about this. We get frustrated because we think if we had better control over this situation, things would go a lot better. Well, consider this. If God has left the entire governing of the world in Jesus' hands, don't you think you should do the same? Shouldn't you trust, if God trusts Christ to reign, shouldn't you trust him? We should trust him. Number two, Jesus has been given the highest name. Look at verse nine again exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus has received a a new name, a new name. And the Bible often refers to like a new stage. So you think of people in the Bible, you think of Abraham became who? Abraham, right? Uh, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, right? Simon became Peter, right? So means that there's a, it's a way to talk about, well, something has changed in their station, what they're doing, who they are, right? We should also note that Jesus' name is not, it's not original to him. There are a lot of people named Jesus. Like it wasn't just like, oh, there's only one guy. It's, it's, it's an original name, right? It means, means it, it's, it's translated Joshua in a different language, but it means God, means Jehovah or God save. That's what it means. So the name we're talking about isn't necessarily the name Jesus, right? I'm talking about that. Look at verse 11. It tells you the answer. What's the name above every name? That Jesus Christ is what? 
Lord. That's the name, right? It's not his actual name. It's, it's who he is. He's the Lord. It's his office, right? He's been crowned with the highest name. So there's none like Jesus Christ. His name, his person is precious and it's powerful. So therefore, friends, if we commit ourselves to Christ, we have all things in heaven committed to us, right? If Christ is ours, we are his. We have more than enough. What more could you possibly need? Psalm 73 verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? If you have Christ, you have all of heaven. And as the heir of all things, there is no better name to have than Jesus Christ. Because as the Lord, Psalm 2 says, The nations are his inheritance. The world is his footstool. He is the treasure of heaven. Now, many of you guys have probably heard this saying. It's not what you know, it's what? Who you know, right? All of us want to be known. We may not say it, but our, fake, our Facebook posts make it very clear. We want to be known for something, right? We want to be seen, appreciated, recognized, envied, honored. So we, we, we just want people to know who we are, right? And this desire, though, to be known, it doesn't make it past your grave. It's as far as it goes. So why do we do that? Why do we desire to make a name for ourselves? You don't have to know a lot of things in the world to really be worthwhile in the world. You don't have to be so great or powerful. You don't have to be wealthy or intelligent. You don't have to have a lot of money or a lot of things or a lot of accolades. There's actually only one name and one person that you need to know that actually matters about everything else in your life. Friends, many may not know your name, but Jesus does. As a Christian, you may not be known, but he who knows all things knows you. So friends, your assurance then is not in being known, but that Christ knows me. Do you hear the difference? Friends, care little for your name being known as long as Christ is honored. He who cares little for his own name is of great use to the kingdom of God because you won't care what happens to you. I don't care about my name. You care about is Christ honored? Then I'll go for it. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is a verse that we should all just slap on our front doors, put it in our car, I mean, just have it in your brain. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his smite. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what we should care about, what name we should care about. Do you know how kings made great speeches? So obviously they would yell really loud. But if you got thousands of people before amplification, before microphones, before technology. How do you get your message reaching to thousands of people? Well, in the Great Awakening, George Whitfield had a very powerful voice, but that was very, very odd, and it's not very common. But how would a king get all of his troops to know? What they would do, so a good example is King Henry V. See, this one's King Henry. Okay, That one I got right, all right? I know that one. I looked it up. It's a real thing, okay? Shakespeare play, but also it's real. Uh, how did King Henry get... His 10,000 troops to know his speech. Well, what he did was he had what we call relay men or people who would repeat the message every somewhat 
number of troops. They, they have a guy who knew the speech who could also hear it. So he would hear it and he would repeat it to the people in front of him. Then you, you have another guy so far awaiting the same thing. So the speech would carry through the mouth of relay men, of human repeaters. So the king's message was spread through his servants. Brothers, are you a relay man for the Lord? Do you communicate Christ? Consider this, that there is no other name that has eternal value, but God has put that name to your tongue. That is an honor, isn't it not? Friends, we will only have a certain amount of words spoken in our life before we die. You should make them spent and count for Christ. There's no other name we're speaking about. Number three, Jesus will receive the highest praise. So Jesus has, re- has been given the highest name, and he now will receive the highest praise. Look at verses 10 and 11. To give the name above every name, so that, it's kind of like a, an, another therefore, is the, the, the explanation, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the reason for the cross was the crown, right? Jesus came to die, but he came really to go back. He came to get the reward. That's why he came, right? Uh, One writer put it this way. The resurrection proclaims he lives. The exaltation proclaims he reigns. So Christ says because he's gone back, we can trust he really is in charge. He really is supreme. He really is the Lord. You see, in, when Christ was a, a man on earth, his power was hidden, right? It was, it was there, but it was veiled. But when he was exalted to the right hand, now it's very clear. Oh, he is the Lord. It's so clear, right? And in, in the Bible, they, the, the writers write it almost in a way that it's hidden in plain sight. You see little things if you look for them, that everything Jesus was doing was always to go up back to his father. So in the Bible, did you know that the city of Jerusalem is built on a hill. So when, when, when it spoke about Jesus going to the cross, it always spoke about Jesus having to go up to Jerusalem, up to the cross, because when he goes to the cross, where's he going after? He's going up, right? He's going up to the crosses. It's very clear. In Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 19, John 12, they all write that Jesus was going up. It doesn't it, 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 it just mean, oh, he's going to Jerusalem. It literally means he has to ascend upwards to the city. Because the cross was where he would then be crowned, right? The, the ascension and the exaltation of Christ was always in his own mind. John 14, you know this text. I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? Jesus says, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you if it were not so? So what he's referring to in John 14 is, how is Jesus going somewhere to prepare a place for us? Where's he have to go? He has to go to the cross, And then where's that place at? It's in glory. So he has to go up, right? I'm going to a place for you. It's it's up. I have to go do it, right? So he's always telling us he has to go upwards. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah 45, uh, verse 23. If there's ever a person that says, you know, the Bible never clearly says that Jesus Christ is God. Though, again, this whole chapter is all about this, what we've covered so far. But Isaiah 45, verse 23 is clear as day who the New Testament writers believe Jesus was. So Isaiah 45, this is Yahweh speaking. This is God speaking. 
And he says this, By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now what does that sound like? It's Philippians, we just read that, right? Paul is saying, you know what Yahweh said? That's Jesus. Jesus is the one that one day every nation, every tongue, every person will bow to, right? All those in heaven, so meaning angelic powers, whether angels, right, or spiritual beings, right? On earth, non-believers and believers alike will one day bow that Christ is Lord and confess it. And under there are people in hell. There's nobody in hell that will not acknowledge, yeah, he really is the Lord. We may hate him, but he's the Lord. They'll confess it, right? Jesus will get total honor and praise from all people, all tongues, all nations. There won't be a creature that doesn't proclaim this, right? So friends, every knee will bow to the lordship of Christ. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, every person will either bow in one of two ways, as you probably have heard, either willfully and joyfully, he's Lord, I love and treasure Christ. Or it will be in fearful destruction. Unbelievers will confess in fear under his mighty, mighty power, right? At the judgment. I don't know if you know this, but if you've ever seen a honeybee outside, so not, not, not every bee, but specifically honeybees, that you're never going to see a rogue honeybee. Like, oh, he, he, he just out on vacation going for a stroll, just to fly around, hang out. They're always under someone's authority. They're always under a queen bee. There's always some kind of hive they work for. There's always some kind of royal queen bee that they do their bidding. They're flying according to her direction. They're doing things for her. Well, very well the same. There are no human beings who do not have some kind of lord or master. So the question is, whose will do you follow? No one walks around freely. We all obey somebody. Whose laws do you operate under? Who is your Lord? Now, as Christians, we like to say this, that to become a Christian, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? That's what we always say. And I understand that sentiment. I think it's right. But let me, let's just be even more biblical than that in a helpful way, that every person, without exception, does have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It just may not be a good one. Can we agree on that? Everyone will have to deal with him one way or another. And friends, there are many in the world that fill churches, perhaps even in this one, perhaps in ones down the road, who split this verse in half. I'll profess him with my tongue, but he does not get my knee. He is not my master. I can speak it, but I will not kneel it. So friends, true conversion is expressed in total willing submission to Christ in every area of life. Maybe to put it very simply, if Christ is not Lord of all, he is not your Lord at all. Uh, before Kale and I were married, uh, what would you say if I were to say, hey, Kale, are you married to your wife? Eh, we're like 95% married. Would you say I'm married? Can you be 95% married? You would be 100% unmarried, right? You, you just can't. So it is with being a Christian, friends. There is, no there is no intentional, willing refusal of Christ's lordship in your life. Now, do Christians stumble in many ways? First, I want to tell you, yes and amen, right? Unfortunately, yes and ouch. 
but Christians are not those who say, but that area, I'm just not going to do it. And I don't really care what you say. Friends, 95% obedience is 100% disobedience. Being a Christian is not saying, Jesus, just give me a makeover. It's a takeover. It's you have complete, you do what you want, I will do what you say, right? That's, a, that's what Christianity, that's what conversion is. If you're not a Christian, your sins must be dealt with. Your rejection of this king is cosmic treason, right? Your sins have put you under his judgment. You are in the enemy's camp if you're not a believer. So what must you do? Well, here's the really good news. Is that Jesus changes his enemies into his subjects, not by force, but by free grace. He doesn't bug them until they go, fine, I'll surrender. It's by grace. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. This is what we understand the gospel. That Jesus does change sinners into Christians, into saints, not by force, but by free grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still rebels, still outside his camp, right? Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were what? Enemies, right? Enemies of the king, friends. We are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now are we reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? So King Jesus has laws that are broken, that we have broken, right? As a loving king, he offers free pardon. Any rebel can come and be pardoned from the king, right? Jesus died and rose again for sinners. That's the, the free gift, the free grace to change enemies into friends, right? Hostile enemies into faithful subjects of Christ, right? He commands us to confess our rebellion, to surrender to his lordship, and to trust in Christ. It's very simple. The Bible actually says it almost in the, I think, the perfect way according to this text. If you have your Bibles, again, open to Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the way that Christ cures our rebellion is by confessing Christ as Lord, repenting of our sins, and putting our trust in him. So friends, the question you must ask yourself this morning is, am I a friend of the king? What side of the enemy, what side of his castle walls are you on? Hear the words of the king again, John three eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, namely Christ. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John six forty seven. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So friends, we must recognize now that it is now that the castle gates are flung wide open. Kings don't open their gates to people. They just don't. But Christ opened his gates to sinners, right? He calls sinners to flock to him, to drop their swords and run to him and to trust him. So we must humble ourselves, turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ. And the king makes us into his friends, right? His crown brings delight to our souls. His royal love gives me a surrendered life. What else could I want more than him? 
And as believers, friends, we need to think about how good this verse is. That every knee will bow. Let us rest in the reality that one day Jesus really will win. He really does win. This is not some kind of, oh man, it's neck and neck. Do you guys know what a blowout is in sports? I mean, it's not even close, right? Just demolish. Christianity is not just going to be this little footnote in history. Jesus wins. I've read Revelation. He wins. He really does. He will conquer every enemy, right? Jesus sitting at his father's right hand, so comfortable, his enemies are his footstool, the Bible says. He will vanquish every rebellion. He will dissolve all evil. All hostility will fall before him. So therefore, friends, we must not take vengeance ourselves. We leave it to the Lord. He will deal with it. Every evil you've been wronged against, Christ will deal with it. We can trust him. All wrongs one day will be made right. Every evil ever done will be taken care of. Isn't that good news? You don't have to worry about it. Jesus will take care of it. Fourth and lastly, Jesus has sought the highest aim. Look at verse 11 again, very end. So why did Jesus do all this? Why did God exalt Christ? Why did Jesus come to the earth and die to be ascended? Why did he do this? Well, Paul tells you why. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. So Jesus has sought the highest aim, namely God's glory. He will see that God will be glorified in his life and in his reward. This is very odd because the Christian life is very peculiar, isn't it? As Christians, we know it almost seems backwards with the world, right? The last shall be what? First, right? The humble will be exalted. The cross, then the crown. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Do not count your steps to triumph by your steps upward, but by those that are seemingly downward. The way to heaven is downhill. James 4.10 says it this way. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So friends, we must recognize that your glory and honor will probably never come in this life. That's okay. At the proper time, he will exalt you. So aim not for your glory, but for the Father's glory. Do not demand your own way. Do not go around seeking your own will, your way, your glory. Have others submitting to you. Rather, do what Christ did. Submit to the Father. Look for the other person's good, and God will exalt you in due time. Just be patient. It's all about timing. In due time. It is here that we see that the best thing to aim for in the Christian life is the glory of God. If we aim for the glory of God, we get the glory of Christ. If we aim for the glory of Christ, we do other people good. If we do other people good, God's glorified. Do you see the rhythm? It's very, very simple. So Paul's shown us very simple four realities about the ascension, that Christ has received the highest exaltation, that he has been given the highest name, he will receive the highest praise, and he has sought the highest aim. But why does this matter? So what? That's all great, but so what? Did you know that Jesus said it's better that he left us? Did you know that? Isn't that peculiar? John 16, 7, Jesus says, it's better that I go away. Because if I go, the Holy Spirit will come to you. So because Christ has ascended, the Spirit now descends. So you you have an advocate for you in heaven, and you have an advocate in you on earth. 
So the ascension of Christ is absolutely good news, and I want to give you three very brief reasons why. And I mean brief because I can be brief, believe it or not. So first, this should give you confidence in evangelism. Do you know who Eric Liddell was? He's an Olympic runner. He held the world record for the Olympic 400-meter sprint in 1924, uh, he's best known for he was asked one day to run. Uh, uh, it was a 100-meter race, and you, Eric, you're going to blow him out of the water. But it was, it was to be ran on a Sunday. He said, I can't run. Sunday's the Lord's Day. I'm not going to run. So he dropped out of the, 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 the Olympics just to not run. Instead, he became a missionary to China. The day of his leave, he was surrounded by tons of people because he's famous, you know. And they were saying, you are psycho. Why are, you, why are you going to China to be a missionary? And instead of defending himself, he sang the song, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Do you know that hymn? Liddell's confidence was, in because, was, was because Christ does and shall reign. It's the same confidence that gave the apostles confidence in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So therefore, friends, as Christians, you can go into the world as a believer telling other people about Christ because Jesus has all authority. So what are you afraid of? Now, here's the reality that I'm going to speak for all of us in this room because I'm in the same boat. All of us in this room want to see people get converted by the Lord, yes? We all want to see our church grow, yes? But we all don't want to be the one to do it because we're scared. Yes? Yes. Let me give you an encouragement. If he has all authority, what do we have to tremble about? So let me encourage you to take a simple step of obedience. Invite an unbeliever that you see every single week at work to church. Give them a track. There's a bunch by the door over there. That's it. That's the first step, right? Number two, be encouraged in prayer. Again, let's all be on, on the same side here as Christians. Can we agree that there are many times where you feel like your prayers are ineffective. You've been praying for the same thing and it doesn't happen. Either we're not as prayerful as we ought to be or our prayers are not as good apparently as they should be because they're not working. Our prayers, friends, are not heard because of the work of our hands, but because Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus forever lives to make intercession for us. And the Father. So Jesus taking your names before the Father and he gathers our prayers with him. Let me give you an encouragement. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It's three words, probably the most powerful verse on prayer, I think, as in convicting and encouraging. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. You should pray without ceasing because Christ reigns without ending. Do you hear that? That's why. If Christ is unflinching in his power, you should be unceasing in your prayers. So let, let the truth of Christ's everlasting power actually cause you to not only pray more, but see why prayer does matter because Christ can wield it, right? That's how he moves through the world with all power. Number three, and lastly, you can have hope in suffering. On October 19th, 1856, my favorite Baptist dead person, Charles Spurgeon, was only 22, he was, already the, he was already the world's most popular preacher. Everyone knew who Spurgeon was. If you went to England, you would, people would ask you, did you see the queen and did you hear Spurgeon? And this, this is how we talk about him. I mean, you, just, you knew who Spurgeon was. 
And crowds were getting so big, their church had to rent out a huge, a huge music hall called the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, which held about 10,000 people. It was packed full, 10,000 people plus. People were standing in the aisles. People were hanging through windows, standing outside. I mean, 10,000 people. He's only 22 years old, and he's a preacher. After Spurgeon prayed, someone in the building shouted, fire. There's a stampede in his gathering, and seven people were crushed to death. And after that, Spurgeon was absolutely devastated. He refused to preach the next Sunday. He almost quit being a pastor. I, I, I mean, they just wrecked him for good. However, Charles Spurgeon would come back two weeks after the tragedy. So he skipped the next week. The week after he came back, he ascended the pulpit. He opened it up. And this is what he said. These are his first words about the response to what he said about what happened. God shall doubtless overrule it. We are not in the least degree daunted by it. God is with us. Who is he that he shall be against us? And then the, the text that Spurgeon said he selected that gave him confidence while he was away, while he was contemplating how evil and cruel and horrible that was. The text that he preached that gave him confidence was Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, our text this morning. So friends, your Savior who rules all things, rules with holes in his hands. The man of sorrows governs your grief. You can have hope in suffering. Let's pray.